Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we jump into that text, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we open your word today to, just to gather around and hear, hear your spirit speak uh, to us, to lift high the name of, of Jesus and to let him uh, lead the way of our life forward, both corporately, community as a church, but also individually as we go into whatever you have for us tomorrow. We want to be led by the way of Jesus. So lead us, we pray. Amen. The church is one of the last places in the world that humanizes people. Andy Crouch said that at a a conference we did as a church a couple of years ago, and and the moment he said that, I knew, I knew it was true, and it, and it resonated with me in a, in a profound way. That he was tapping into to the core of what I think should be uniquely beautiful about a church community, is that it humanizes people. That we live in a, a dehumanizing world. Technology companies use our, our social media profiles and information to make an algorithm of us in order to get us to buy their products. So there's a digital Tim out there somewhere that Google and Facebook have combined to create for me so that little ads pop up when I'm on the web, perfectly suited for me, which it's always like beard care. That's always what comes up (laughs) for me. And I buy it. It works, actually. It's really handy. Uh, But it's creepy also that our most intimate details are ultimately metadata that's sold for profits to get us to buy things. It's dehumanizing. And the way we speak to one another increasingly, although I want to be clear, it's not new. This has always been a human trait. But the way we speak to one another is is dehumanizing. The New York Times ran an article uh, last March titled, No Hate Left Behind, where it quoted from a survey that asked Republicans and Democrats whether they agreed with this statement about the members of the other party. Members of the other party are not just worse for politics, their ideas are bad, They're not just worse for politics, they are downright evil. And here's the thing, this is bipartisan support. Just over 42% of both parties think the people of the other party are downright evil. They see them in a dehumanizing way. And this weekend on Twitter, you know, a few minutes, I saw people on both sides of the aisle refer to their opponents as trash. The church is one of the last places in the world to humanize people. The article, or The Atlantic just read an article uh, this past week, and the subtitle of the article was Loneliness is Instagram's Hottest Trends. Are any of you familiar with the term influencer, social media influencer? I'm not one of those, just to be clear. Um, But they are these people that have tons of followers. They, uh, They have the most interesting social media feeds. And this article goes into detail about how influencers' feeds have changed over the last few years. And whereas in the beginning phase of this, this trend, uh, the pictures would always be in community. It would be like, look how popular I am. I'm out with other people. I am, uh, look at all the people with me and, and, and who are around me. But increasingly, the trend has gone to people taking pictures of themselves alone. 
being alone. And so those were the most followers who used to capture themselves in parties now capture themselves alone. Here's what the article says. In a different era, the it girl, so this is a social media influencer who's female, the it girl was someone whose photo was taken by onlookers at all the good parties. The new it girl is someone who takes photos of herself at home. And so our social ideal used to be community, party, together. Now it's, it's being alone. And to my fellow introverts, that's not all necessarily bad, right? Some of us are like, hey, man, can we get some more social <laughs> ideal of being alone? Uh, and yet, it's interesting that the trend of loneliness is, is resonating with people. The church is one of the last places in the world to humanize people. Uh, the, what we wanted to do this morning as a church uh, across our campuses was take a, a morning just to, to pause and kind of not necessarily reflect on the series, The Church for the End of the World, the, the Revelation series we just finished, but sort of take like kind of these big cultural themes and trends, things we've been meditating and reflecting on, and just sort of ask the question, what kind of church do we want to be in this moment? Because what, what, what I think I feel and what I know we, we talked about as a team, we feel, is we, we feel like the church is, should be the best in the world at something the world most desperately needs in this moment. The church is uniquely equipped to, to bring something into this world that we all need, and as cheesy as it sounds, is, is it's love. The church should be uniquely good at being a loving presence in the world to counteract these forces of loneliness, of dehumanization, of anger, of increasing isolation. The church should be this unique place that provides the antidote to all that's, that's breaking around us. Our world is desperate for what the church is best at, which is is humanizing love. So we just want to talk about that this morning. Uh, through Romans 12, the text I read uh, for this morning, which is love, love is about four things. Love struggles, love serves, love prays, and love gives. So taking all where we've been, this cultural moment, the church, all of these things, what, it, what kind of church should we be in this moment? We should be a church of love. And first, love, love struggles. At the line uh, that stood out to me in Romans 12 when we were, when we were looking at this is this the second half of verse 10 where Paul says to this church, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, I love that line, and, and, and I'll unpack it more in a second, but it's like this, the view of Christian love given here in Romans 12 is there are a couple things that, that should be true about it. And the first is that, it, that Christian love should be, should be genuine. Right, which is that first line, let love be, be genuine. And that builds to this outdo one another with honor. But first, let love be genuine uh, is, is literally uh, let your love not be hypocritical. Uh, that as far as we know, Jesus is the first one who invented this word hypocrite, which is uh, ultimately in the first century was just an actor. Someone who put a mask on, played a part, and even though they weren't something, uh, they were going to present something to the outside world that they, they actually weren't. It was true on the outside, but not true on the inside, and Jesus took up that turn to describe what he found to be uh, abhorrent in religion, which is that people often claim to be something that they actually were not. Um, and so Christians, our love should not be a mask love, where it's like we're fake on the outside, um, and then internally there's something very different. There should be a, a consistency, a genuineness to our, our love, which unfortunately is not how the broader culture views us today. Lifeway Research, uh, who's a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, recently did a study, and what they found is, is that 72% of people who do not attend church 
use the term hypocrite to apply to Christians. 72% of people who do not attend church find Christians to be hypocrites. And that's a problem because especially as we think about our own church, like our mission, we want to reach people who don't know Jesus, thinking moving into a building, a more present, uh, a more of a presence in our city. Right, if you're running a business and 72% of the people in your city thought your business like was bad, that'd be really hard to succeed in. And yet that's where we are as as a church. And there's lots of reasons for this. But I think increasingly my my biggest like like how I want to think about this and how to counteract this is that we as a church have lost sight of the gospel and the message of grace. And what I mean is if my, lack is, if my life is acting out a part, and it turns out I'm not that part, that's, it, that's what hypocrisy ultimately is. But all, like if the church, if we play out what our part is supposed to be as Christians, which is that we are sinners saved by grace, hypocrisy actually becomes an impossible charge against us. Right? If, we're, if ultimately the, the thing that makes us unique as a church community is that we are sinners saved by grace, like you can't be called a hypocrite because like, well, I, I didn't have a mask on to begin with. I was just, I, yes, I'm a sinner. Right? Like guilty, right? And one of, my, one of my favorite authors, I don't necessarily fully recommend this book, but, but his name is Francis Bufford. And in that book, he refers to the church as the International League of the Guilty. Or in another place, he refers to the church as Hypocrites Anonymous. And yet, like, the people walk into a church, and that's the spirit that, that comes out. This is the, we're the International League of the Guilty. We're Hypocrites Anonymous. Because the more we lose sight of that, the more the charge of hypocrisy becomes, uh, becomes clear. Right? If what makes us Christian is that we're better than other people, well, in the moment it's clear we're not better than other people, then we're hypocrites. And here's a newsflash. Like, the central message of the gospel is that we're not better than anybody else. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're all... Uh, ultimately uh, not worthy of the grace of God. And here's the thing. The central thing that has continued to surprise me most as a pastor of churches is how hard it is to get a Christian to repent of basic sin. Where, like, someone can be, like, they have no defense, right? Like, it's obvious. You did a wrong thing. Here's the evidence. It's clear. Like, you have no defense, right? It's, there's not a misunderstanding. You did this. This was wrong. Just say, I'm sorry. And they can't. And they can't. It's, there's, well, there's, here's why I did it. And if, if all the circumstances, and it's, I, it's just a pastor. I, I get to the point. It's like, why is this so hard for us? Like, you get, into the, you get into the kingdom of God by saying, I am a broken sinner deserving of hell, and Jesus alone saves me of it. And somewhere along the line, we forget that. And the rest of the culture is seeing that in us because we've lost sight of the central message of grace, of the gospel. Let love be genuine. We are sinners. We are, hypocr- we are hypocrites anonymous. We're the National League, International League of the, the Guilty. And when, we, when you live off that vibe, hypocrisy is an impossible charge. So let love be genuine first. But then I love this. Let, let uh, or outdo one another in showing honor. You think of show honor to others. And this is particularly thinking of the Christian community. Show honor to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the, when I thought of this this week, the first thing that came to my mind is, is my wife is really good at this. Um, because for our kids' birthday, she came up with this idea. So what we do is we blow up an obscene amount of balloons. And we put them in garbage bags and, and laundry baskets. And then we wait for them to wake up. And when they wake up, we just dump balloons on them on their birthday morning and just tell them happy birthday. And they love it. They think it's the greatest thing 
in the world. So much so that uh, my son Abel, who's like, he's the early riser um, of our kids. He turned four just a couple months ago. And I was up at like, it was like 6 a.m. And I hear his door open and he like starts coming down the stairs and he just looks around because he's waiting for the balloons. And it's like, dude, it's 6 a.m., man. Your birthday, it doesn't count yet, right? Just go back to bed. And so he went back to bed, and he just kind of wait, and we come and we dump him, and they just love it. It's, it's balloons, honor, it's right, it's this showing you're important, your significance, your value. And the church should be this competition in, in us dumping balloons on one another, <laughs> on showing honor and value to one another. And often, often we aren't that. That often the charge of, of, of Christian hypocrisy is rooted in, in the fact that Christians at times seem really gifted and tearing other people down and pointing out their faults and showing where they're failing and showing where they're wrong and broken and where they should be different. And listen, that all is a part of this community, right? Sin is real. We should repent. And yet, are we, are we, are we showing on? Are we dumping balloons on one another, encouraging, speaking good words to one another? That if the church is uh, the International League of the Guilty, Hypocrites Anonymous, and we are, then it means a couple of things. And the first being that, yes, people around you in this room will frustrate you. Like, I promise you. If there's anything I feel like I can guarantee you as a pastor, other than the love and grace of God, is that the, people, the Christians around you will make you mad at some point. It's going to happen. And in that moment, uh, in that moment, one, have, you, have we done the work of actually showing the honor to potentially lift people out of sin, Right? Guilt and shame are typically very, very poor motivating factors. Grace and kindness are and change. So for one, have we done that? But then two, if, if we're all sinners, it means we're going to annoy one another. And that's, actually, that's not a sign of a problem in the church. It's actually a sign of, of, of that we are hypocrites anonymous. That we are the International League of the Guilty. And so I was, I was reading an article recently about faith. That when faith has gotten too comfortable in particular... And one of the litmus tests they gave for whether or not you know your faith is too com- comfortable was this. The one, if, if your faith is too comfortable, it means uh, if you aren't annoyed by someone at church, you probably aren't engaging there enough. So first point, love struggles to be genuine, to bring honor to those around us. Instead of withdrawing into ourselves, we reach out, we engage, we humanize, we lift up. I think the world is hungry for a love like that. That, that is genuine, that shows honor, that, that, that calls out the dignity and value in all human life around us, even if there's sin present there, which there always is. So first, love, uh, love struggles. Second, love, love serves. And so the next thing Paul goes into in Romans 12 is, is, is verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. It's pretty clear in the context of this, uh, in this passage, that this service to the Lord is in particular serving within the Christian community. So we talk a lot here about service outside the Christian community, but here I want to talk internally, what it means to serve the Lord as a Christian community. And Paul here, he, sort of, he says this in two different ways. First, he says, don't, uh, don't be slothful in, in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Sort of two ways of saying when it comes to serving your fellow Christians, don't be lazy engage, go after it, serve well, serve with passion. I remember the first time I, I meaningfully served the, the church. 
And it was, uh, I've talked about this in, in, you know, before, but we, uh, our, our church started kind of a, a high school worship service for high school students only at this building that was across the way from our, our, our church's main building because there wasn't room in, anywhere in the building to do this. And so we rented this space out. So it was my first mobile church experience. So this goes way back to like the 90s, uh, 99, or no, it was 2000. It was 2000s. It's like 15, 16, 17, 18 years ago. And we started the service, and we had this cart that we would load everything on. We would roll it out to the building, and then we would roll it back. It's very similar to what we did just a few hours ago this morning. Um, but, but the thing was, like, I would get there. I was the drummer, so I would get there at 6 to set up my drums, and I typically didn't leave till, uh, till after our second service, which was 1231. Um, I was a 17-, 18-year-old kid uh, during, during this time. And that, that cultivated in me this love for the church, this love for, for God, um, um, it also cultivated in me a uh, frustration because we had like we had this this giant snake uh, that, that all of the cords were wrapped into. It was like this thick. And they had this box that we had to put it into that for whatever reason we decided to buy a box that wasn't big enough for the cord that it went into. So that cord to put that cord in that box every week, it was a two-person job. One person wrapped the cord into the box, the other person prayed that the Lord would expand that box to get that cord into that box. And we I did that week after week after week. And it it I am like I gave me service gave me such a heart for God's people and and the church. Service is itself a spiritual growth pathway. And so the reason why we do we do two services here on Sunday, although I guess this is increasingly I was I had things in here that's not true today because this room doesn't fit one one service uh, anymore. But uh, but the reason we do, we've done two services from the beginning is, is not because we had to, but it was a choice we made. I made in particular with a team of people because, because service is a spiritual formation pathway. And our hope is what you'll do every week is you'll come and you'll serve one service, children's ministry, hospitality, safety, tech, wherever. You'll serve one service and then you'll worship with us one service. Because as in, what will change your heart more so than maybe anything else is serving other Christians, is is putting yourself below others, serving them, and, and watching what God does that to, to your hearts and to your minds. So serve one, worship one. And that, that, that is so much of what changed uh, my own life. And so much of our calls to service are not about filling needs for us, but actually because we're convinced that if you want to look more and more like Jesus, the best way to do it is to serve. To serve one another. So love, or love struggles, uh, love, love serves. Thirdly, love, love praise. Verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And what I love about this line is you have, you have two what seem like contradictory statements, which are be a person of joy, rejoicing in, in hope, and be patient in tribulation while you suffer. Be a person of hope and joy in the midst of pain and suffering, and the way you do that, or at least I don't know that Paul is necessarily laying out this as a three-step process, but I think this is, this is how it works. The way you become a person of joy and hope in the midst of tribulation is to be a person of prayer. And so you could do a whole, a whole sermon on like what that looks like or what that means. I'm going to try it in like three minutes to, to summarize um, all of that. And the ultimate, like Christians, we have so much reason to be people of hope and joy because we have so much promised by God to us. Right, and we just spent nine weeks, uh, you know, in Revelation, where we 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 listen to Jesus speak particularly to the church, to different churches in different cities, and make promises to them about what's coming. And we didn't finish the book. That's what the entire rest of the book is about: is the promises God is making to His people to come back and to save us, to make all things new, to make all things 
right? And that is our hope, right? That is the thing we can rejoice in because whatever suffering we experience in this life, that hope is not touched by anything this world has to offer. And so while there is much to be sad about in this world, much to lament about in this world, our rejoicing comes not because God gives us really great circumstances, right? Our joy is not because we naively shut our eyes to the rest of the hard facts of this world. Our joy is rooted in the hope of Jesus. So we can be patient in tribulation and rejoice in hope. And the way to do that is to be constant in, in prayer, right? How do we maintain our joy in the midst of a sad world? It's prayer, and here's how that works. I've, I've been listening to this uh, podcast lately called The Happiness Lab. It's really, it's really interesting. It's really fun. I recommend it to you if you want to know how to be happier. And, and it sort of is a look at how do humans be uh, happy. And it's Dr. Lori Santos. She uh, started this class at, uh, at Harvard, I believe, that uh, was a response to basically the increasing depression in her students, increasing loneliness, isolation, the lack of happiness. She was seeing in her, in her class, she started to do research on happiness and how to help her students be happier People. And one of the recent episodes was done um, on silver medal uh, winners at the Olympic Games. And it was fascinating. It started with this meme of Michaela uh, Maroney, that you might remember, who won silver medal in the Olympic uh, Games. There should be a photo of that um, up in the slides somewhere. Uh, but Tom Gilovich, a researcher, noted, noted a long time ago that there seemed to be like this like sadness to silver medal winners, and he wanted to know why. So what he did, this is 1992, VHS tapes were like the cutting edge technology. So he got himself a VHS recorder, VHS tapes, and he recorded the entire games and, and pulled out all of the clips of, of, of the silver medal win winners and the, the bronze medal winners. And what he did was he then gathered judges to judge the reactions of the bronze medal winner and the silver medal winners, and, and they had to, to rate the, the reactions of the faces on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being uh, you're miserable, 10 being ecstasy, right? You're 1 being bad, 10 being good. And what they found was the average bronze medalist scored a 7.1. So they were pretty happy. They finished third in the Olympic Games. It's an amazing accomplishment. A silver medalist scored a 4.8. They actually beat the bronze medalist, but they're, they're angry about it. They're, they're less Happy, And the reason, Gilovich uh, would say, who did this research, is it all depends on the meaning you attach to a particular event. So the silver medalist looks at the fact that they, one person beat them. They're the first loser. The bronze medalist looks at, I beat all of these people below me for a medal. Right? And the lens through which they saw their events determines their happiness of what they Led to. The view, in other words, their view of reality, Gilovich says, the view of reality determines their happiness. And so, Christians, prayer is where we get in touch with reality. The way things really are with God, with the world. It doesn't mean that, that we ignore what's broken, what's wrong, what's sad. But prayer is when we get in touch with God, and, and God is reality. We look, at his, we look at his past faithfulness, we look at his, his future promises, and we rest in that truth. Be constant in prayer. Our world needs hopeful, rejoicing people. Not caught up, caught up in, in the dehumanation, outrage, anger process, but in a process of joy. Even though we don't, we don't listen, we're not saying we're ignoring hard facts about the world. We're not naive. But we know reality, and reality is God. And whatever hard facts there are, God is more real than those 
hard facts. And so we can rejoice in hope even while we're patient in tribulation because we are constant in prayer. So love prays, thirdly. And then finally, uh, love, love gives. Uh, and Paul concludes, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Right? Give yourself away to the needs of those around you, the, the needs of those within the church especially, and show hospitality to those outside of the church. So the beginning of, of who we are as a church, our own mission statement, is that we exist to be a caring family. And that's, it, that's the, like the one line of everything we do we have to get right, which is we want to be a place that cares for one another as if we are our family. And I, just, I want to pause because I think, I think sometimes we don't communicate the the ways in which we try to do this to our, our church. And this last point, actually, it's not going to be a, all right, here's how we better do this. It's actually going to be just a reflection of, just a celebration of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dump balloons on you guys a little bit in point four. Um, in that, that your generosity and the way you give to us enables us as a church across campuses to, to do these two things, to, to show hospitality to those outside our church, as well as to, to help the needs of those within our church. Um, and so last year, uh, our, our benevolence fund uh, was able to give away about $68,000 in benevolence giving across five campuses. That's emergency services. That's a bill needs paid. Someone needs economic help. And we go in and we help them. Uh, we always want to help uh, give them a hand up. So we both provide uh, initial needs as well as provide financial counseling along um, with that. That includes grief support and counseling. Um, so thank you. I mean, even this week I got a call about someone uh, we know, we, we've been working with the apartment complexes uh, at Prairie Points. Uh, many of you know that. We're going to increase that engagement in the year to come. But got a call about someone who's just in a, in a terrible financial position. They just started a job. They're, not, they're, they're great um, at what they're doing. They, need, uh, they just need guidance and some significant emergency assistance. And because of your generosity, I get to go in as a, church, as a, as a pastor and say, you know, there's a group of Christians who really care for you and want to help you and want to help you think through this moment of your life. Um, and, and what it can mean um, for you. I get to go and do that because of your, your generosity. We talked about advice and aid, your generosity there, serving on Thursday night as well as the Thanksgiving bags we were able to hand um, away, that, that your generosity has, has strengthened and supported and encouraged a church in China, China that's in the midst of, of persecution and, and trying to push the mission um, forward of, of God in the midst of, of opposition. And that our total outreach budget across campuses um, this year comes in at about $950,000, total budget of about $8 million, so about nine hundred and fifty towards our, our outreach. And that helps, that gives uh, towards our partners who are working with, uh, with children and immigrants and education and the homeless, affordable housing in Kansas City, addiction recovery in our city. It gives towards church planting and pastoral training uh, in Rwanda and Kenya and China and Iran and Germany. Um, it gives to our own pastoral residency program, which changed up pastors to, to send out for the, the next generation. We'll get to add one into our campus here in about a month and a half. Joseph Luigs will be joining our staff on January 6th. Um, and so giving is, is inherent in our model. And, and I think the thing that makes me just most excited about where, where we are as a church is your generosity, is the way in which you give yourself away to one another in community groups, as well as financially, as well as to our partners and so that's why, like, this, you know, at the end of the sermon isn't, like, you know, typically as pastors what we're supposed to do is, like, all right, guys, here's what you're not doing. You better do it. Like, that's, that's not what I want to end with uh, this morning. What I want to end with instead is, is a call to continue, continue more. 
And ultimately, we, we have a big, 2020 is going to be a big year for us as, as a church. If, uh, you know, moving into a new building, um, all that comes with that. And, and, and to not forget the reason we exist as a church is to give ourselves away, both to one another as a church community, as well as to our, our city, to show hospitality to those outside of our congregation, as well to, to contribute to the needs of one another within our congregation. So let's keep that up. And be a place of love to our, our city. Because if our world needs anything, it needs to know that there's a God in heaven who, who loves them so much, he gave his only son, Jesus, to, to die for us, to bring us back into the kingdom of God. And the only way people are going to ever think that's true is obviously the supernatural act of God, that's first. But along with that is a church community that makes that, that message coherence and believable because of the way in which we love and give ourselves away. And so our next step this way is not to do more, it's to figure out more. It's just to continue to be a place and to grow into being a place that rests in the, the love of God over us first before we ever try to go and serve and give and pray and do any of those things. We have to just rest in the fact we are a community who has a God as Father who loves us, who gave his son for us, and who wants to know us. And I think of this always when I think of uh, me and my relationship to my, my seven-month-old daughter, right? Misty doesn't have to tell me, hey, you need to smile at your daughter some. Um, it just happens. Right? This is my disposition towards her. My favorite thing in the world right now is that when I come into a room and I see her, I smile at her, and she smiles back at me. And I think that's, that is the image of what the church is to be, is that God, our Father's disposition towards us is one of kindness and grace and mercy and love. And as, he ga- as, as we encounter his gaze and love and smile towards us, we are people of joy smiling back. And if you think I'm just making that up, here, here's some scriptures. Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isaiah 64. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That may we be a community living in the gaze of our Father's affection and love towards us, and let that love emanate to a dehumanizing world. Or as Madeline Lee Engel put it, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Right? We can rest in the love of our Father toward us because it's not rooted in how good of a child we are, not in how much we impress Him, how much we do for Him, accomplish for Him. We can rest in him, in his gaze and love towards us because of his own son, Jesus, who struggled for us, right? He came in, he gave all of himself to us and got a cross for it, who prayed for us. The New Testament says Jesus is still to this moment interceding for us at the right hand of the Father and whose love gave all for us, his own life. That is the Father, that the Father got his disposition and gaze towards us, his love and concern for us. 
The church is the last place, maybe the last place in the world that humanizes people. And our world is desperate for what the church should be best at. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you and, and just want to receive your grace and kindness and love and mercy. And ultimately, like no speaker can, can speak words that, that can make that true. The Spirit has to make that true in our hearts and lives. And so I pray now, as we, as we, as we prepare for communion, as we are about to watch uh, a baptism video, you would just over, overwhelm our hearts with, with your love towards us. God, would you fill us with your love so that we can turn out to the rest of the world and love the way you've loved us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.